0: all right first john chapter two Uh, we are coming to the last week of dealing with these first two verses of first john chapter two and friends i think with a text that is so important as this one it's kind of like spending a couple weeks i don't know if you ever i don't know how this works necessarily in west texas um In Missouri, when we get ready to plant a garden, generally we have to clear off the brush first. And then we finally kind of see that there is ground that is worth planting in, right? And I don't ever want us to think about approaching the Word of God as though there were something to be cleared off here. But there are a lot of misconceptions about what the Word of God teaches. There's a lot of things that have grown up amongst the people of God that just aren't true. And so we've spent... Uh, the past couple of weeks, looking at this text and and nailing down that the purpose of its writing, of why John is writing, is clearly, one, for our joy, that we would know that we would have fellowship in uh, Christ, but also, it's specifically in these first two verses, John is writing that we may not sin. And then we looked at last week that there is Much controversy over what is said in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And my argument will always be that we have to read every verse of Scripture in light of its immediate context, and then every book in light of its biblical context. And we see that in this context, and in the biblical context as a whole, that this passage is not saying that Jesus died for the sins of each and every person that has ever lived. Because Jesus himself stood before Pilate and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If we're talking worlds, this one is not the one that belongs to Jesus in its fullest sense. In fact, John goes on to say later that we know that we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and so it's clear that what he is writing of here in verse two, in its context in John's writing this first letter, and then in the sum total of the context of Scripture, that this verse does not teach universalism in total; that it, it, it doesn't teach a universalism that God. Died for, Christ died for, and God is saving every person. Maybe the most convincing argument comes from Jesus' high priestly prayer. Would you turn with me in John chapter 17 this morning? John chapter 17. John, the author of this letter, also writing this gospel, records Christ's high priestly prayer. We're going to begin in verse 9 and read all the way through verse 21. And I want you to hear the way in which Christ interacts with the word world as he is pleading for you and I before the Father. He says, I am praying for them. That is, those who believe upon him. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they, may also, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. Now, if Jesus does not pray for the whole world, and He explicitly says here that He's not praying for the entire world. But then He goes on later to ask that the world may believe that You have. The Father have sent Christ. How do we reconcile those two things? Well, I believe B.B. Warfield gives a helpful Uh, explanation of two types of universalism. One is the each and every universalism. Every person that has ever lived on the planet. And we can speak of the world in that sense. But we also understand that the Bible speaks of the world in an eschatological universalism. That is a world that exists in eternity future when all of the redeemed of God are gathered up. And I believe that that is the world For which Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer. The world being everyone that the Father has given to the Son, every one of the redeemed of God, every person from every tribe and nation and tongue that actually comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the world to which Jesus for which Jesus prays in this high priestly prayer. Now that is what I think is meant uh, in this passage but i also believe that that is that is what is being said in 1 john chapter 2 verse 2 what he is saying is he is the propitiation John is writing for our sins and that group for our sins is the original audience that would have received this letter but not only for our sins but for the sins of all of those who would believe upon the name of Jesus He's died for their sins as well and we know that our our savior has called us to go into the world and to preach the gospel to every tribe nation and tongue that he may gather his church from all over the world So in fact, in a sense, understanding that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is gathered from every point of the globe, the church that will exist in the future, that doesn't rob us when we say Jesus only died for those who come to saving faith in Him. That doesn't rob us with a missional objective. It fires up our desire to take the gospel into all the world because we want that world to come to pass. We pray, Father, might Your will be done And we know His will. His will is that His glory would permeate the earth and that the world in total would believe upon His name, the the world for which Christ died. Now, beloved, we may not agree on that interpretation, but I owe you my intellectual honesty. I don't believe that you can read 1 John in its entirety and come to the point where John says we know that we are of God and makes a distinct group, but the entire world lies in the power of the evil one. And then read that same kind of world into this verse, because to do that would to be it would be to undermine the comfort that is being offered. If world means the same thing in every context, then when John comes here to comfort us and to say that he is the propitiation for our sins, not only ours but for the sins of the whole world, but that world lies in the power. We have to be distinct about what world we're talking about, don't we? Otherwise, we're going to lose out on the comfort that John is aiming at. I hope at the end of today, you will see further why this propitiation is only for the redeemed of God and why that matters in the context of these comforting verses for sinners such as you and I. With that in mind, if you would stand to do honor to the reading of God's Word... John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Hold on. Some people ask me why I even wear one of those when I just am going to take it off anyway. It's because they have like a thousand chicken brooders up above my head. I'm just... Anyway, sorry. John writing here. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this. We may know that we are in him, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And this is the word of God to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning knowing our frailty and knowing that far too often we take lightly the things of your word. Might you, by the working of your spirit, open our blinded eyes and cause your word to bear fruit in our hearts in the walk that we have with you, and might you be glorified through the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are two things that tend to be true of humans when it comes to sin, when we come to being confronted with the reality that we are sinners. And John has laid down that groundwork in the closing verses of chapter 1 heartily. He's pointed to the reality of a sinful, broken world. He's pointed to the reality that each one of us are prone to sin, that we have a sin nature. And he's also pointed to the fact that in our individual actions, we often sin. Uh, the two responses that are most often in uh, uh, each one of us being co- confronted with our sin is one we seek every excuse in the book to vindicate us from our sin well, we find a reason why it's reasonable that we would sin against a holy god but if we don't do that then our next option is often to excuse sin in and it of itself entirely to just explain it away But John has made so plain in chapter 1 verse 5 that this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That in God there is no capacity for sin and in us there must be a decreasing level of sin as we are being sanctified by the Spirit of God. We must not excuse ourselves and we must not excuse sin. Knowing this, and knowing that we are surrounded by a dark world, then John proceeds to write words that a wise older man would write to those that he dearly loves. Knowing that we are sinful, and knowing the world is a dark place, he writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous. And there is encouragement in these words that I hope you leave today seeing afresh and anew. In four little words, we are given great consolation to our sinful souls. And those four words are simply, we have an advocate. Now you might take those lightly or in their cultural context of what an advocate is. But in reality of our sin, at the moment when we are the lowest, while, while we feel as though we have no right to walk with God, as we see ourselves for being wretched and depraved and not deserving of the mercy of God, in those dark moments, set in this present dark world, we need to be reminded at our worst level that we have an advocate. That we have one who is interceding on our behalf. That's the whole thrust and encouragement of these first two verses. Not The the, the aim is that we may not sin, but the encouragement is that when we do, we who are in Christ, we really have an advocate. But if anyone does sin, John says, now now that is a phrase that only a Christian can appreciate. That's a, a, a phrase that only those who have been regenerated by the... Power of the Spirit of Almighty God will really care about, in its fullest sense, because we have had our eyes open to the reality of our depravity, and we see that apart from God, we are hopeless in this world. And we know that we are those who sin. You see, the world doesn't come and really find the writings of First John that impactful. Because they don't care about sin at all. They excuse themselves or they explain sin away in its entirety. But John doesn't do that. John acknowledges the reality of God's holiness. But then he goes on to say, I'm writing so that you may not sin. And if you are in Christ, it is now possible that you would not sin. But if you do sin, be reminded, beloved, you have an advocate. John has lived in the reality of the spiritual battle that Paul wrote of in Ephesians chapter 6. And you'll remember Ephesians chapter 6. That was the chapter that we just flew through. John knows the reality of the flaming darts of the evil one. John knows what it means to be discouraged because he has been given a vision of this holy God of heaven and he realizes who he is altogether unworthy and that Satan comes in as the accuser of the brethren and says you are not good enough. God would never accept you. You might as well just call your Christian life complete. Lay down your apostleship. Because you have sinned. John knows What it means to apply the work of the gospel in the immediate context of this fallen, dark world and of our own individual sin. He knows that Satan loves to heap doubt in the mind of the believer. If the believer can't be snatched out of the hand of God, and we can't be, then Satan's next tactic is to discourage us in our walk with the Lord. And John rises this morning in the power of his words here 2,000 years off and reminds you and I that if we sin, we have an advocate. We have one who stands between us and a holy God. So in those moments when we question how can we really have fellowship with this holy God that John is writing about, how can He really love us for who we are today? How can we really be loved even in the moments that we bring the most shame and dishonor to God? And if you're here this morning and you think of yourself, I've never done that, I would encourage you to believe with all of your heart that arrogance is something that brings shame and dishonor. Every one of us have, in moments of our lives, sinned egregiously against the God of heaven. And John comes to settle all of these questions that swirl in our mind and to answer them with these four words We have an advocate. Now, beloved, there are those who come to this text, and I think they think way too little of Christ. In fact, they probably don't even come to this text, but people who think that God's just going to forgive their sins, that that, that there's such a cultural saturation of a form of the gospel in our day and age that people live with this idea of God being their buddy who will just, whenever they say, you know, I've messed up, that God is just going to turn to them and forgive them of their sin, but they never calculate in their minds the person and the work of Christ and what it took to secure that forgiveness. You see, the real Christian will always have in view that their forgiveness was purchased by the blood of Jesus. But there is a cultural, civic religion that preaches the forgiveness of God but marginalizes the work of Christ. And we don't want to be guilty of that. We always want to keep before our eyes the reality that our advocate is the reason why we have forgiveness. had one person that was a member of this church at one point come to me one day and say, Jay, you preach too hard on sin. I don't believe that because I don't think that you can ever preach on sin too hard. Um, But he said to me, he said, Brother... When I screw up, I just like to climb up, pretend like I'm climbing up in God's lap like he's my daddy. And I just say, Daddy, will you make it all better? What a profane view of who God is and his work for our redemption. It makes me tremble to think about that type of view of the forgiveness of God. God had to send His only begotten Son into the world to bear the weight of His wrath and to cover our sin and give us the righteousness of Christ. The New Testament makes clear that for our sins to be forgiven, there must be a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore the wrath of God. He covers our sin by His blood. He also takes away the guilt of our sin on Himself, on the cross. And without Him, there is no forgiveness of sin. Do you remember the author of Hebrews explaining the fullness of Christ's sacrifice in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22? Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. We do not have a God who merely goes around with a magic wand and says poof I forgive your sin. There had to be an atoning work done to provide for our forgiveness and it was provided for in the precious blood of the Lamb of God. And the beauty and the power of Christ to every true believer then is found in the reality that He took our sins upon Himself bodily. And that is the advocate we have right now before the Father. All of the Old Testament points to this reality. All of the Old Testament sacrificial system points to the reality that that, that blood had to be spilled so that the the wrath of God would be satisfied. And for our sin to be remitted, the blood of Christ had to be spilled and has been spilled that we might know that we are forgiven. Far too often, I think what we... We do, and Braxton alluded to it earlier, is that we think of our relationship with God much like we think of our relationship with our friends or our family members. When we wrong one of them, we can merely just go and say, do this often to my wife. I know I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. I was a horse's posterior. Um, She sometimes helps me with the label. Um... would you forgive me and she of course graciously forgives me and and there's there, there's not the same kind of transaction though that happens with, with the Lord and I think far too often we, we have experienced in our horizontal relationships so often that transactional kind of forgiveness that we forget the reality that in the economy of God he is far more he is holy he is other than we are And in him is no darkness at all. And in fact, John has already laid down the framework that there's not capacity. And we can't come into his presence with our filth in our own standing because we would not live if we did that. And so we have to come through the righteousness of Christ to ask for forgiveness. As John here has encouraged us to confess our sins to God, that is a great thing. But let us not think that we are somehow working our confession around the second person of the Trinity. Our confession of sin goes through the blood of Christ. It is through the shedding of His blood that we have encouragement this morning, that we have right standing with God. So then let us shed every other thought that somehow we please God in our own merit. If it takes the blood of Christ even to ask for forgiveness, how dare we come to Him with our works and think that somehow He's pretty impressed by us. It's not how our relationship with God works. We need to understand this rightly. We we need to understand what an advocate really is. I think one one of the things that has happened... I think if we read the word, the encouragement here, you, Donna, this morning, you have an advocate. And if that doesn't, in each of our lives, if we don't apply it to our account and just in our hearts want to jump out of our chair and say, praise God forever, if we are not elated by the fact that we have an advocate, something's wrong, Uh, to put it in Language that most of my Missourian friends would understand. If this doesn't light your fire, your wood may be wet. (laughs) This is one of the greatest encouragements, I think, in all of the Scriptures. But the problem is, is far too often we misunderstand the word advocate. We think of it in far too professional terms. The word advocate means one who stands and speaks in place of another. Another. One who stands and takes up the cause of another. And it can be used in our day and age in clinical terms, academic terms, in legal terms. Often lawyers are pictured as advocates. But to understand this word advocate in the worldly sense means to rob it of its true blessing in light of its scriptural context. Because this one word advocate, parakletos, Uh, it, 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 It is actually a word that is unique to John's writing. John is the only biblical New Testament author that uses this word. And it's interesting to see that John uses this word repeatedly, I think four or five times in his gospel... And his consistent use of the word advocate or parakletos in the, the gospel of John is to point us to the reality Jesus is speaking. And he says he's going to send an advocate, a helper, the Holy Spirit into the world at his ascension that we might be comforted. And and what we find in the full scope of what he means in this work is that the work of the Spirit is to point us in the direction of Jesus and to grow us in our relationship with God. That even as we experience trials and difficulties in a dark world, there we have a comforter, an advocate, one who is moving in us to point us in the direction of Jesus. So we need to see this word for what it really means and all of its clarity. We, we, we must never then see this word when we hear, we have an advocate, and I think we do think in legal terms often, and, and we think that somehow Jesus is standing before the throne of God and he is there arguing and kind of fighting out with God the Father if God will really allow his propitiation to be sufficient. Almost like God is this angry, unhinged judge who is out to get all of us, and Jesus is the one standing in our place, and He is the one who is truly seeking our salvation. Kind of like God the Father and God the Son are arguing something out, and I want to tell you on the authority of Scripture this morning, that is not what is pictured here. Because to have that kind of view would immediately, one, undermine the immutability of God. God hasn't changed his mind about his plan of redemption from the foundation of the world to this very moment and he never will change his mind about his plan of redemption second there is not it's not as though god were setting uh, judging the the church and jesus was ter- was turning trying to make up every argument he could come up with i love watching lawyers when they're caught kind of blindsided by an argument from the other side and they just don't know what to say and so then in open court they say some of the most hideous stupid things that could ever be said in a, a public hearing It makes me kind of chuckle inside. Jesus isn't like that. He's not caught off guard. And and here's the deal. The accuser is not God the Father. The accuser is Satan. God the Father and the Son are in complete lockstep agreement about this advocacy. In fact, what we find in our Bibles is this reality. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have Eternal life. The judge in our case turns out to be the very one that sends our advocate into the world. He is the one who has laid out this pactus salutum, this agreement before the foundation of the world, that our redemption would not be attempted but would be accomplished. It's not like the sun got a little bit. Ticked off at the Father one night and slipped out of heaven to try and go save some of these people on earth. The Father has sent the Son to be our propitiation. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's our advocate. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. In Christ, God, himself, God was reconciling the world to Himself. There again is the use of the word world. And we know that it can't be in its universal each and every context. It has to be the, the redeemed world. Those who turn in faith and repentance. So the idea that God is unwilling or overbearing or against us. Beloved, you can be done with those thoughts today. Because He's the one that sent the Advocate. He's the one that has provided in that sense. Now we also can't fall into the other extreme of thinking that Jesus' work was done on the cross and so somehow God, in the, God takes this, what is being communicated through John is some sort of past event that has present application in a passive sense. That somehow Jesus fulfilled all of His work and He did. He said, it is finished from the cross. His work of redemption was completed there. But what we have in this text is not an advocacy that is once and done. We have a priest who is interceding for us at this very hour. He is pleading his own blood, his own sacrifice before the throne of God. Remember what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The, 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 the author of Hebrews is pointing to this reality. That only appoint, that, that priests had to be appointed in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And do you know why they had to be appointed? Continually on an ongoing generational basis, because 100% of the priests that were appointed in the Old Testament system died in their trespasses, died because of the fall and because of their sin, right? And so, priest A would die, and here would come the next one that was appointed, and the next, and the next, and the next. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that's not necessary with Jesus. Jesus is our perpetual great high priest who is our advocate and who is interceding on our behalf at this very moment. We don't need another advocate. We don't need to wonder if Jesus will be enough in advocating for our redemption. Again, Jesus is our high priest and he is there before God pleading his own accomplished work it's been said that the that that, that the holy spirit intercedes in us that that in moments in our lives when, when when our groanings escape words that there the spirit of god is interceding inside of us but here we have a picture that christ intercedes before the father for us continually What an encouragement that is, that not only in our salvation, as our hearts have been regenerated and now we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, do we have the Spirit of God interceding in us, but we also, before the throne of the Father, have the Son interceding before Him. The Spirit continually helps us to grow in grace and walk worthy of our calling and to usher us into a greater relationship with Christ. And Christ there is before the Father ever advocating for us. He is doing that moment by moment. He ever lives. He is a living advocate at this very moment at the right hand of God interceding for us. And you know when you sin, think about the time in your life that grieves you the most in your spirit over your sin. Can I tell you in that moment you did not stop Him from advocating for you for one second. His advocacy didn't go, whoa. We hit a big sinful road bump there. I don't know. I'm going to have to go back and consult. And we're going to have to bifurcate with some of the other attorneys. We're going to have to think about this. And maybe this isn't a sin we want to pay for. Jesus is well aware of the sins that he bore in his body. And he's there at the right hand of majesty. Being our ever-present advocate. Advocate. He's not a part-time advocate. He's not a distant advocate. He's not a distracted advocate. If you hire a lawyer, I can promise you this, you will find that their advocacy is limited. Even the best lawyers. You will find that, that they have a big caseload. Or, or sometimes things escape their memory. Or sometimes their particular goals, although in ethical rules, are supposed to completely align with yours. Their real objective and yours are not aligned. Talk to somebody in the criminal justice system that might have been given a first year uh, graduate out of law school as a public defender. And they'll tell you, man, not every advocate is the same. But beloved, this morning, our advocate is not limited in any way. In fact, one of the greatest, I think, realities of this text are found also in these three words, with the Father. The, 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 what is being pressed in in the original language is that we have an advocate face to face with the Father. Father. The underlying Greek language gives the picture of there is intimate connection and communion between God the Father and God the Son. Here we have a picture of the Trinity knowing that there are three persons in one substance and our advocate doesn't ever shrink back from being before God the Father and pleading our cause. Jesus is face to face intimately and eternally for His people. You remember, I think that's an astonishing reality when we go all the way back to Moses' interaction in Exodus chapter 30 with God when he says, show me your glory. And friends, when we sang that this morning, when we also sing, God reveal your glory to us, do we understand the weight of what we're asking? The reality that we are asking to see the glory of God in the pages of Scripture. That's not just something to mumble out. Because God looked at, moses and said man cannot see my face and live there is a distinction i am holy and you are not and if you were to see me in the fullness of my glory it would literally kill you but for those of us in christ at this very moment though we don't see god face to face We behold the goodness of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and it is His face that is turned towards the Father this morning intimately advocating for our redemption. He is our advocate before the Father. Our advocate also understands our weakness. Sometimes advocates come in and they really don't understand their client. They really don't understand the one that they're talking on behalf of. They don't see the full picture or the full weight. But in Hebrews chapter 4, we are told, For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. He understands what it means to live in a fallen, difficult world. He understands what it means to walk through a world that is in the power of the evil one and to be truly human in that endeavor. He knows our frame and He advocates accordingly. He also is not a begrudging advocate. He's not an advocate that's kind of half hearted in what he's doing. And this morning we talked about what our New Testament reading was from Luke chapter 15, and there we see the older brother as the prodigal son has returned, and the father is elated that his son is, is back home, and he kills the fatted calf, and he welcomes him home. And there is the stingy, arrogant, priggish brother who just kind of is angry. How dare you give part of what would now be my inheritance to this sloppy brother of mine? Now, friends, that may picture you and I in different moments in our life, and it does. God's given us that so we see who we really are when we act that way. But I promise you on the authority of the Word of God, that has never for one second been Jesus' attitude towards you who are in Christ. He, He does it when you come to Him, somehow say, well, look, I... I obeyed everything in your place. And you better straighten up and you better fly right and you better do it right because I'm not giving you any part of my inheritance unless you do it on your own. That's not what he says. That's not how he interacts with us. He doesn't begrudge us. In fact, this is one of the most beautiful things about this reality that we have an advocate is not only does he stand in our place and advocate our redemption, our forgiveness, He's also continually pleading that His righteousness, that all of His inheritance that rightly belonged to Jesus and Jesus alone is imputed to our account. That as God sees each one of us here today who are in Christ, He doesn't see us as, as merely something that might turn out one day. He sees us in the full righteousness of Christ. With all of the benefits of the one who never sinned. That should give us cause to just rejoice in our mind. And a church member here also say to me one time, you know, there are times that I just think about how I live my life and Jesus must be just up there saying, and this person's name, boy, I'm just so disappointed in you. I wish you would straighten up and all of these things. What an undermining of the advocacy that we have In Christ. What an undermining of the redemptive work of God on our behalf. God doesn't look down and and shake his head thinking, well, boy, I didn't know what I was getting into when I redeemed this one. He had set his love on you before the foundation of the world, before you did anything good or evil. And all of the advocacy of Christ has rested in place for you from the very time of Christ's ascension. Again, Jesus knows the sins that He's paid for. The sins that Jesus paid for are not what some academic theologians have said. Theoretical. When Jesus bore the wrath of God, it wasn't for the theoretical potential of everyone. It was for those that He would advocate for. They were real sins that He felt in His body. Do you know why we are are called not to sin? One of the things we talked about two weeks ago. Because when we sin, we know that it adds to the sufferings of Christ. Because it's not a theoretical suffering. It's real suffering for real sins that really had to be paid for. Here's what I want you to see more than anything else in this text. That his advocacy is not without a firm foundation. In nonprofits, sometimes you'll find people that say they are an advocate for this group or that group and they'll tell you, well, we will stand up and we will help you. As long as it fits our agenda, our foundation only advocates for these ten things, and it's fine that they do that. But Jesus isn't a fair weather advocate because his advocacy is not rooted in us. He doesn't have a a, a, a foundation to his advocacy that is shifting. He's never going to run out of energy for his advocacy because he is eternal. But second, his advocacy has a definite foundation. And I want you to see that in this text. If you hear nothing else, wake up and pay attention to this. Now, I don't want to start a theological controversy, and that's not my point. But this text, treated poorly, often is treated in one of two ways. One, again, as we talked about last week, people will come to this text and they'll say, well, theoretically... The Bible's not a theoretical document, so you can sit down now. Or, they will limit the text incorrectly. And what do I mean by that? Inevitably, unless you are a a, a, sum total universalist, an individual who believes that God is saving everyone, regardless of their their repentance and faith, regardless of any outward manifestation of their faith, God's just indiscriminately saving every person that has ever lived. That is another category altogether. But inside of the group beyond that, you will limit these two verses somewhere. And the way that I think we should limit the text is this. Again, we should read verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, the first recipients, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All of those throughout time who would call upon the name of the Lord. Now, there will be some who will come and say, no, this clearly teaches that, that Jesus died for the whole world. But then what they will do in some form or fashion, and generally it comes this way, they will limit the text somewhere else. They will, they will, they will advocate for a position that we qualify the unlimited atonement by, and what they point to is the advocacy of Christ. Well, the atonement... The propitiation is unlimited for the entire world. But Jesus only advocates for His people. Jesus only takes care of those who are His. So somewhere in the text, we limit what is going on. And here is my emphatic reason why I believe you should never limit the advocacy. Because it undermines the entire point that's being made. The point is... The propitiation of Christ, the the suffering and the atonement of Christ is sufficient for the sins of all of those who call upon the name of Christ throughout all of eternity. And Christ stands on that finished work advocating for every person who has ever believed upon him. His advocacy is never limited. And the second that we get into the argument that we have to see, verse 2, as being for every person indiscriminately, then immediately what you do is you attack the sufficiency of the advocacy of Christ. You limit it in some way. And in the minds of those who have been given this text, you and I, that causes us to doubt. Well, in what way is He really going to limit that advocacy? Maybe, maybe, I need to rethink... Whether or not he's really going to advocate for my position. And that's not true. The one question this text must beg in verse 2 is this. Are you part of the world for which Christ died? Have you come to saving faith in Jesus? And when you can answer yes to that question. Forget about answering the nebulous theological question. Just realize that you have an advocate with the Father. And it's an unlimited advocacy why do I stand on a definite atonement? Because I want to stand on an unlimited advocacy. And if I don't do that, then I have to limit what Christ is doing before the right hand of God the Father this morning and there is no limit to what He is doing. He is pleading for every person in the world that He's seeking to redeem. Doesn't that give you encouragement this morning? Doesn't that make your heart go, yes God! knowing that I am part of that redeemed world, now I have full assurance that Jesus is advocating my position before a holy God. I have been saved by His grace alone. And there is no limit to His love and what He will do to bring me into the kingdom. Everything He does is definite. The atonement is for those that call upon the name of the Lord. It is not for those who squander and who ignore and who stiffen their neck and walk willfully in their sins. There's something greater in this text. And it's this. Look at verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. He's not an unwilling advocate. He's not a limited advocate. He's not an uncertain advocate. He's one who is standing there interceding in a living fashion for us today. And that is with the Father, face to face. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our advocate, it just so happens is holy. I think one of the things that happens when we teach about the holiness of God, we look throughout the Bible and what we see when sinful man comes face to face with a holy God is that we tremble and we quake in fear because we know that we aren't holy. And that's part of what John is writing about. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And then he spends four verses going on to explain how sinful we are. Like John, really? I, we got the message. We know. And so, you know, in the church today, well, we don't want to get too much about the holiness of God. That's nonsense. You don't want to get too much of the wrong, misconceived notion of what holiness is. But when we rightly understand the holiness of God, it is, should be our greatest encouragement. Because what is being said here, Jesus is holy. He is the righteous one. And and that righteousness, the holiness, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You and I can't stand before him in the context of verse 5 without an advocate. But as it turns out, we do have an advocate. And this advocate is holy, righteous, perfect, pure, different than we are. And when Jesus stands before His Father, the righteous judge, that holiness makes all of the difference. Because His holiness cannot be ignored. What is being pictured here is that God can't look at His Son and say, well, you know, I've just decided this sacrifice isn't good enough. Because to do that would undermine everything in verse 5, and it would actually mean that there is darkness in God. So not only is the holiness of God the very thing that should drive us to our knees, begging for the mercy of God, it's also the thing that upholds us, and we have assurance that Christ's sacrifice on our behalf is sufficient. Why is the atonement of Christ sufficient? Is it sufficient, Braxton, because you're not going to mess up next week? Blaine, is the sacrifice of Jesus sufficient because you're a great guy? Brian, is, is the atonement of Christ sufficient because of who you are? No, the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient because He's holy. He's completed it once for all and He'll never back down from His plan of redemption. So not only does the holiness of God call us to cry out, woe is me, I am unclean and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, it also beckons us to have confidence and go boldly before the throne of grace because He has made promises and He will pay His promises. What an encouragement. What a joy this morning. To know that we rest in, a, in, in an advocate who deals with us. Not according to our sin, but according to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can almost picture, and I don't want to take this too far... But the reality that there in the economy of this advocacy is God the Father and our advocate the Son is standing interceding on our behalf and Satan is standing there constantly accusing the brethren, constantly pointing out our flaws and our sins and our shortcomings and the reality that we don't glorify God in our own strength to the fullest. And he's saying, see, you've you've put your love upon people like this. They're rebel. And Jesus says, that is true, but I paid for all of their sin. And it would be a detriment to your own holiness not to receive these that you've given me by grace. And that's exactly what Jesus is praying for in his high priestly prayer. Father, I'm not praying for everyone. I'm praying for that world that you have given me. That I will accomplish their redemption in total. God, you may pour out your wrath upon all of Satan, his demons, and every person that is born in this world that doesn't come to repentance and faith who follows the father of lies. But for the holy ones, the ones that belong to me, the ones that I've redeemed by my blood, the ones that the Spirit has regenerated apart from the works of man, the one that you have set your love upon before the foundation of the world, those belong to me, and I will advocate for them eternally. Isn't that a joy? Isn't that something that just causes you to absolutely praise God that the work of redemption doesn't rest on you? I've heard over and over, and I know I've said it to you before, people say, God votes for you, Satan votes against you, you cast the deciding vote. As it turns out, we can forget about our vote. We have an advocate. And He is there interceding for us. And His is the only vote that matters. And it is a vote. That pursued you in your unrighteousness, your rebellion, your religious self worth, and won you by grace. And now, even on your darkest day, you can rest knowing that his advocacy is absolute, absolutely sure. I want to end today simply this way. I hope I've pressed into your mind the glory of the reality that you have an advocate. A holy advocate. An advocate that isn't going to back down from his task. An advocate that is not in any way shocked at your sin. And that advocacy, in fact, draws you closer to him so that you may not sin. It doesn't push you further away from him. We have an advocate, beloved. I want you to hear Him pray for you once again. John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them, and I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me. You have given me, for they are yours, all are mine, all mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not let, and not one of them has Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be In us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire, this is a verse I read almost every time I stand by a graveside. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. These, beloved, are the words of your advocate. And he's still advocating that very prayer before the throne this morning on your behalf. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the reminder through the words of John that You have sent Your Son to be our advocate, that He is holy, and that You'll never turn back on Your promise to redeem us. That You've set Your love upon us from the foundation of the world and in kindness You've opened our blinded eyes that we would see we are sinful people and we fled to Christ in repentance and faith by Your grace. Father God, I pray that we would not be discouraged in our walk with You. That we would not use the reality that we have an advocate to be a license to sin, but an encouragement to walk in holiness. Father, we desire to be like You. This morning, I pray that we would rest completely.